exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what we do at Kung Fu Podcast. I'm your host, Sifu T.W. Smith. Thank you so much for joining me today in episode number 112. If this is your first time to the program, welcome. You're going to be part of an audience that are some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. People that work hard and take a lot of pride in their craft. And I'm assuming that's you as well. For all of you that celebrate and bring in the Chinese New Year, I hope yours was fantastic. It's a holiday that really resonates with me, and I always look forward to it. It's also coincidental that the Chinese New Year has a lot of mythology in it, and that's what we're talking about during this series of podcasts, where we're looking at Dr. Paul Bowman's book, The Mythology of Martial Arts. And we've had dragon dancing in the martial arts. We talked about that in some previous podcasts. We have a lot of this stuff built in throughout the Asian martial arts. So we're going to pick up where we did. I would encourage you, if you did not listen to 108, that you go back and listen to it, where I actually do the introduction of the book. And Dr. Paul Bowman wrote me uh, just shortly after that. And I get the impression that their publisher and Dr. Bowman are both happy with the job I'm doing. So let's see if I can keep that going through 112. We're going to get right into the program today, where we're talking about studying mythology which isn't easy at all for me. This is by far probably the most difficult area of the martial arts to work with. And it's not that I'm so utilitarian that I don't enjoy good culture and good adventures. It's when sometimes studying mythology as it's associated with martial arts and separating the differences between legends and things along those lines really takes a lot of energy out of me because it kind of goes against my grain. And then there's also the component of how do you use it. I mean, in that sense, I am kind of utilitarian because if I can't use it, if it doesn't do something for me, then why am I doing it? I'll give you a good example. In the Chinese New Year, for example, as part of the cultural experience, I I still burn money during the holiday. And it's mostly because it does do something for me in believing that I'm thinking of people who came before me, people who I care about, and in some way, offering a tribute to them. But one of the ways that we might use it is understanding that as traditional martial artists, what we believe about something can change four important components. One, how you approach it. Two, how you treat it. Three, how you use it. And then ultimately, what that something becomes. And even if you don't share someone else's beliefs, you must always be aware of what they're willing to do because of that belief. For example, let's say salvation. Or on another side, just for drugs, that they believe drugs helps them experience life better. And what are they willing to do to get it? It is those components, the parts that you have to understand that even if you don't share someone else's belief, it's important to know what other people are prepared to do in order to carry out their beliefs. And this is why I make myself dedicate time to study things such as myths, legends, and lineages, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, that are sometimes very opaque and almost mystical in other times. These myths and legends are in 
every traditional form of martial arts that I, that I can find. We can go through karate, taekwondo, uh, muay thai, you name it, you can find it. If it's a traditional martial art, there is just about some form of myths and legends and uh, big fish stories, you name it, they're in there. And Dr. Paul Bowman is an expert in an area that I am barely a novice. So it takes a lot for me to wrap my head around and try to see and understand the differences between hazes and fogs. We will use terms like hazes and fogs and mists almost interchangeably, but they are all different, even though in many ways they are all the same. Fogs and hazes, they're all the same in the sense they'll put this barrier between us and what we're trying to see, or at a minimum, they'll distort what you're trying to see. They also create this obscurity or opaqueness, and it makes some of the things that would normally be very tangible for us a little less tangible. They become more intangible. They can be amazing phenomenons that people want to take pictures of, or they can be a real pain in the butt. If that mist or fog is thick enough and lasts long enough and you're in the middle of it, you can actually get lost in it. And it's hard to find your way back to the tangible part of the world, isn't it? There are many instances where people have ran off the road because of the fog and they couldn't see the path any further. But where hazes and fogs differ are in their source. What contributes to the makeup of these phenomena? Well, at universetoday.com, they define a fog as whenever there is a temperature difference between the ground and the air, when the humidity is high enough and there is enough water vapor or moisture, fog is sure to form. However, the kind of fog and how long it lasts and its effects will depend on different conditions. Fog is naturally occurring without any extras, whether mankind was here or not, you have warm water, cool air, things move around. The ambient environment will transform itself to create the fog. A haze is not quite the same. It takes usually some sort of injection. Sometimes that's natural, like a volcano going off, but most of the time it's not. A haze is traditionally an atmospheric phenomenon where dust, smoke, and other dry particles obscure the clarity of the sky. Haze has a much dirtier feel to it. Sometimes it's natural, as we said before, but usually someone's pollution is what contributes to this obscurity that we call a haze. When studying Dr. Bowman's mythology of martial arts, I'm always trying to discern whether this is a myth like a fog that occurs naturally with the ambient environment or if it's something dirtier, like an injection of pollution. For example, selling sports martial arts is self-protection. When we're trying to define things, we may ask ourselves, well, what is a myth? Is it just a lie? Is it something that just somebody makes up? Or is it you know, something that uh, there was some evidence of or something that we just believe in? But as Dr. Bowman points out, oftentimes it's best not to set a predetermined definition for a term but rather, look at how people are using the term at the present time. Let's put this defining terms by how they're being used theory to work. Street fighting versus self-protection. While defining street fighting, 
people certainly use it to dramatize circumstances and objectives in order to sell their product or service. At Dictionary.com, they define a street fighter as, quote, a person whose style of fist fighting was learned in the streets, as opposed to a trained and proficient boxer. Then their second definition is, a person that deals with others in an aggressive and cunning manner, end quote. They give a historical and contextual example of the use of the term in a novel dated 1915 titled Nights in London by Thomas Burke, where he writes, hands down, chin protruded. He advanced on his opponent with the slow, insidious movement of a street fighter. And then there was another definition that says that street fighting is hand-to-hand combat in public places between individuals or groups of people. So my question to you as some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world, do you see the myth built into those definitions? How is the term street fighter being used? Well, quite often today, you can see the term street fighter or this is the best on the street and all this other stuff put in these images and videos so that they can sell you their secret system or the unbeatable technique. None of the definitions I just shared with you mention that street fighting is an illegal activity. It implies that it is somewhat consensual. And then for me, there's this ultimate myth that you're somehow supposed to win this street fight. And this is where we begin to separate the myth of street fighting and self-protection. Just like good friend of the program, Ian Abernathy likes to say a lot, conflict has objectives. And usually the problem is, is that conflict occurs when your objective is different than theirs. Because if your objectives were the same, there would probably be no conflict, right? But it's important to remember that you win a competition. I've won bodybuilding competitions. I've won football awards. I've done this kind of stuff. You win things and earn things in competition. In self-protection, there is nothing to be won, and there's nothing consensual about it. There is absolutely no chance that if you're a traditional martial artist that you should be prepared for a fair fight. And all the snake oil magazine people, tournament and seminar people, who portray self-protection as street fighting, really should be ashamed of themselves. They're creating this myth that is seen as a gospel and sold to unaware youth as real. I'm going to share with you a real example of self-protection. July 16, 2016. Young Air Force serviceman is out jogging. Two criminals, note here, not opponents, come out of nowhere with a knife. They are trying to drag him into a Ford vehicle. The serviceman manages to headbutt one of these criminals in the eye socket. The other ass looks to see what happened to his accomplice. And while he does, the serviceman escapes. I'd like for you to go and compare that to the real scene of the myth that's usually portrayed in street fighting. And just as important to me, We just took multiple podcasts where we took Ian Abernathy's thoughts on headbutting. We did the research, and we knew that headbutting is an invaluable part of a traditional martial artist toolkit. And here is a perfect example of a young serviceman who saves his life by using the only tool he had available, 
a headbutt to the eye socket. So when we compare that real example to the definitions I shared with you earlier, we see that it was one, non-consensual. Two, there was weapons. It was two against one. And the objective for that serviceman was not to win it like it was some MMA match. It was to survive and to get back home to his family with as little injury and blood loss as possible. I apologize if I kind of get on these rants, but in my practical martial arts class, this is one of these fantasy land mindsets that has to be constantly worked through during every class to get them through this haze that other people has put their pollution in there and now you can't see what's tangible and intangible because they've got so many twisted things in there and been watching it or, oh, I've been looking at Black Belt Magazine or I saw it on the TV that this, this... Okay, you were looking through the haze of the media. You were looking through the haze of a magazine. This guy's trying to sell you this. You know, all this kind of stuff. So occasionally... Um, I'm take my moment and get off my rant. So now let's take a moment and get back to the review of the book with Dr. Paul Bowman's excellent work in Chapter 1, The Myth of Wrestling. In 1957, Roland Barthes had his book in Mythologies and Martial Arts, and he has an essay on the world of wrestling. And the wrestling isn't about Greek or Roman wrestling or Olympic wrestling, those type of, uh, you know, sporting competitive events. It's all about show wrestling. One of the things that I learned during that process is that professional show wrestling was very popular in the 1950s in Paris. Later, that wrestling would turn into something like the WWE. But what's intriguing there is that in this 1957 essay, Barth describes the wrestling spectacle as dramatic, social, and filled with meaning. And this is where the myth pumps into it. Paul writes on page two, quote, Wrestling is about good versus evil, Barth argues. It's about justice and injustice. Every moment is fully legible in moral terms. There are crimes and punishments, treacheries and atonements. And through all of this, values are proposed established, and reinforced. Each event is saturated with meaning, end quote. Later, Paul goes on to write, which basically helps me understand how a clever marketer can sell street fighting as self-protection. Or in this case, they can sell viewers a wrestling spectacle and they can be drawn so deeply into it, they see it as the reality. Paul writes on page five, in other words... Barth is suggesting that people flip into and out of belief systems. People are not one-dimensional. As Herbert Marcuse feared, this is another key feature of Barth's notion of myth and also of his understanding of the complexity of people as audience, readers, viewers, and complex thinking agents, and indeed, the world. For Barth argues that mythical images and spectacles can and do pull us in, but we can and often do snap out of them a moment later, end quote. Further along in the chapter, Paul discusses how it's the showmanship and the dramatization that separates wrestlers from other spectacles, where he quotes Roland Barth as writing, the function of the wrestler is not to win. It is to exactly go through the motions which are expected of him. It is said 
that judo contains a hidden, symbolic aspect. Even in the midst of efficiency, its gestures are measured, precise but restricted, drawn accurately but by a stroke without volume. Wrestling, on the contrary, offers excessive gestures, exploited to the limit of their meaning. In judo, a man who is down is hardly down at all. He rolls over, he draws back, he eludes defeat, or, if the latter is obvious, he immediately disappears. In wrestling, a man who is down is exaggeratedly so, and completely fills the eyes of the spectators with the intolerable spectacle of his powerlessness. End of reference. One of the things I like to point out here is that Paul emphasizes how important this reference to judo in the 1950s is to us as practical martial artists. During the reference, Barth does not explain what judo is. He writes about it as if the reader surely knows what it is. And he puts judo up as the counter to show wrestling. Chapter 1 lays the framework of understanding of what something is or is not by moving yourself away from looking at something for the qualities that you see, but to look at it in how it was formed. Much like the metaphorical example that we talked about earlier, the ambient environment, the natural occurring fog, as compared to the pollution the injection of most hazes. Paul writes on page 9 where he's going to reference Jaques Doretta, and he says, Doretta's approach to the question of what it is to be something urges us to reconfigure our understanding of being, to move from thinking in terms of essences, where he references this here, you can identify a bodybuilder because of the way he or she looks and is, and to look at the processes that create the effect of the essence or the thing. Thus we can see that the bodybuilder is a process or effect created by a complex array of practices and activities led by a particular kind of desire. To echo Simone de Beauvoir, one is simply not born a bodybuilder. One becomes a bodybuilder. And this becoming is a process of supplement upon supplement. Lifting weights, attention to nutrition, food supplements, training supplements, chemical supplements, and so on. End of paragraph. So one of the ways that we're going to identify the differences between hazes and mists is not to look at them as they are, but how do they get formed that way? And that leads us into chapter 2. But so far, we discussed my shortcomings of embracing mythologies, at least some parts of it, uh, creation process of fogs and hazes, and how that might be similar to the creation of a myth. We looked at the selling of street fighting as compared to self-protection and the differences between objectives. And we actually shared a real story of a serviceman who used a headbutt to get himself away from two criminals attacking him with a knife and trying to drag him into a car. As we go into chapter 2, Paul doesn't hesitate to get right into what he's going to be talking about here, and that is that martial arts are marginal. Paul argues that martial arts are marginal not because that they're unknown, but because 
that they are in a contextual situation, that you almost have to explain yourself why you're participating in them. And that in itself is the essence of what causes it to be marginal. But Chapter 2 has a lot of good work, and it was titled The Status of Martial Arts in the West, From the Kung Fu Craze to Master Ken. Chapter 2, by far, is the one that makes me the least comfortable. Not because of Paul's writing, but because of my lack of understanding of how to evaluate martial arts through media. We always called it show kung fu. For me, it'd be trying like watching the WWE and suspend belief so that as a whole, it would appear real. I've always seen it as entertainment. But the athletes that work on their craft, the injuries, the short lifespans that come from that particular physical labor is real. Another example is when I see Jason Bourne, I don't see, air quote, real martial arts. But I can tell from the experience I'm working on a project or two, the real work, the long hours of preparation and practice in the martial arts techniques that take a real commitment. The mindset that judges and values practical martial arts through movies is unfamiliar to me. Again, it would be like me judging how well the WWE's Texas Cloverleaf submission hold would work in my self-protection training. Or how getting on my back on guard in an alleyway against two knuckleheads is going to work. In Chapter 2, Paul follows the cultural trends as they're depicted in the media. It almost has this feeling of which comes first, the chicken or egg sort of question. Does the culture play out what it sees in the martial arts media, Black Belt magazine, movies, or does the media depict what the culture does or wants to see? And then later through this chapter, you're going to see where the media actually begins to poke fun at the culture and the other media sources for depicting and believing in the myths to begin with. Chapter 2 is a good chapter. It's one I need, but it's not the one easy for me. We're going to be moving into Chapter 3. And it's kind of like the new sheriff in town. But I made a note, I called it the new term in town. What is this Orientalism that you speak of? Paul shares that in Chapter 3 that the term Orientalism was created by author Edward Said in his book by that name. You'll be able to find a link for it on the page with this podcast at the Kung Fu Podcast Die Hard Library. Recall that when we're trying to define Orientalism, that in this work, Paul's work, a term is not defined by the dictionary as much as how the term is used. On page 27, Paul writes, Said's argument was that in Western discourses, the Orient is imagined, romanticized, and mythologized in ways that are both reductive and that ultimately reveal more about Western fantasies of a mystical other world than anything real about actual geographical regions, nations, ethnic groups, or types of people. End quote. It is here where Paul's going to give you a real good early view of how a term such as Orientalism was being used and then later sometimes twisted, but not just by opportunistic marketers, but by the academia themselves, 
researchers in the field such as cultural studies. It got to a point that by the mid-1990s, this use or misuse drew warnings from people such as Miss Ray Chow. Later in this chapter, you'll see where culture is interwoven with identity and that desire is inseparable from our identity. This is where you're going to see this laying of a foundation for mythology. Paul discusses the culture, then cross-cultural desires. The effect of culture on our identity, particularly in the martial arts, we discussed in great detail in Kung Fu Podcast number 9495 with Dr. Tan as he did his research on the Aikido Center in Canada. However, Paul explains how our identity and our desires may be recognized as different, but they are impossible to separate. This really resonated with me, and I know that in talking with other martial artists uh, from around the world, that one of the things that happened is that we desired to be different, or we were concerned about the path we were on, and we used the martial arts, the culture, the expectations, the corporeal activities to change our identities. And this tight link, inseparable link, between your identity and your desire is important to remember because Ph.D. Adam Frank is going to share something with us. I want to give you a little backdrop on Ph.D. Adam Frank. He graduated from the University of Texas in beautiful Austin in the field of anthropology. His dissertation title was Tai Chi Chuan and the Search for the Little Old Chinese Man. Ritualizing Race Through Martial Arts. And there are two people on his committee I wanted to recognize. And the first was his chair, Deborah Capchin. Now, when you look her up, she has a laundry list of things that she's worked with in the fields of anthropology, including sound studies, translational studies, performance in the Middle East and South Africa studies, performance of everyday life, and as well as embodiment. And the next name on his list that was sitting there on his committee was Avram Barretts. And I hope, as a longtime listener of Kung Fu Podcast, you recognize that name because he's in our diehard library. With the book titled, God's Ghosts and Gangsters, Ritual Violence, Martial Arts, and Masculinity on the Margins of Chinese Society. Well, with a committee like that that you got to earn your Ph.D. through, you can probably rest assured that he does some real solid work. And his dissertation, Tai Chi Chuan and the Search for the Little Old Chinese Man, you can't even get it on Amazon. I'm having to put myself on some sort of waiting list. I was able to find pieces of it out there, but they're out of stock. And all of the summaries of it were great, except for one guy who bought it, and he was just upset because he had to pay $75 to get it. He said the book was great. But he just hated having to pay that much for it. And if any of you all find it or you got a copy laying around or something, remember your good old friend, Sifu T.W. Smith. The email address is at the website. I'll even pay for the shipping if you just let me hold it and just let me read it. I'll be glad to share with you. But like I said, I'm on a list. But, you know, just putting it out there, if you happen to run across it, remember your friends. Well, one of the things that Adam Franks talks about in his research that became his dissertation, which became a book that you can't even find, is that the identity moves with your desires. Paul writes on page 36, 
However, as Adam Frank reiterates many times through his 2006 ethnographic study of martial arts culture in Shanghai, identity moves. In our present terms, then, this suggests that if identity moves, then desire also moves, and that there is some kind of relationship between these two movements, or communications. Adam Frank's book is called Tai Chi Chuan and the Search for the Little Old Chinese Man, Understanding Identity Through Martial Arts. It is the culmination of his formal fieldwork research, which took the form of learning Tai Chi in Shanghai. But unlike many participant ethnographies, Frank's work does not limit itself to a myopic focus on the events that took place during his periods of formal fieldwork. Rather, he does not shy away from the questions of his own desires and fantasies as they moved him and worked in him before, during, and after his formal study. End quote. So one of the things that will be important for us to remember are things like culture, identity, are not nouns. They're actually better thought of as verbs. And this is where we're going to put a bookmark in the review of Dr. Paul Bowman's work, The Mythologies of Martial Arts. So as a quick summary... We discussed some of my shortcomings as far as uh, understanding mythologies. The differences between hazes and fogs or how does something get created and being aware of paying attention to not what you see but how it was formed. You got to see a real example of the difference between self-protection and what many people market as the myth of self-protection or street fighting. We also took a glance at the cyclic relationship between the media and culture and how they start to feed one another. We referenced Edward Said in his 1970s book, Orientalism, Professor Adam Frank, which we just discussed, and that culture should be better observed as a verb rather than a noun. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. Thank you so much for joining me today in episode number 112, where we took a look at chapters 1 through 3 of Dr. Paul Bowman's book, Mythologies of Martial Arts. I could recommend it highly to put into your library and use it as a resource of understanding parts of the martial arts that you may not normally study, and to also understand a little bit more about yourself through the process. I know I'm learning things about why I got involved in it and why I was learning things uh, in a way that I had not thought about before. Anyway, get out there, get your practice in, do your best, put some sweat into your craft. Have a good one, and I'll be talking with you again soon.